Welcome to Musical Osmosis, where intelligent dissonant thought meets melodic euphonious reality. I am your musically magnanimous host, Nick the Saucy One Cat Source, broadcasting as always from Meth Mountain, Tennessee. And I also want to introduce my pro custofully proficient co host, calling in all the way from Charm City, Maryland, my pal Odell. A little bit more pep that, in that intro today? That was good. That was a good one. That was a good one. That felt, that felt real. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it's mechanical because i've said it so many times so i, I just right. jump on to time and go hey musical osmosis you know what's up you know what's what's going on do you like the very white thing yeah baby musical osmosis <laughs> is here to rock your booty we're gonna, we're gonna skip all the games tonight and just get yeah. down to business let's get right, let's get right to the bone <laughs> And I'm uh, oh, back there pushing all of the sanitized buttons in her hermetically sealed bubble. In the next room is our magnificent producer, Dee, who has something to announce that came out today. Yes. Well, by the time you hear this, it'll have been a few days. But uh, just premiered at noon today was this really cool new video from Jeremiah Watkins called From a Distance. Um, it's kind of if rappers were responsible so, uh, hey, includes, now. We know it, well, no, it includes the line, um, wear a mask, bitch. Uh, so, <laughs> but no, I, um, Jeremiah was needing a few people to do a, a, a vocal part for part of the choir bit in the middle. And, um, so yeah, I just sent him over a little thing and it was a lot of fun and I can't wait to see what he's got coming next. So definitely check out, um, Jeremiah on, Insta, YouTube, all the things. Um, and you can also find that video on our Musical Osmosis page on Facebook. Super easy. Just look up Musical Osmosis uh, on Facebook, and we're right there. And, well, I uh, bow and tip my hat to you, kind man. Yeah. Bravo. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. All right. Yeah. Speaking of fun things that are put up, Odell, I love your little studio station. You put a picture up a few minutes ago. Um, I didn't oh, know you had Darth Vader framed next to your desk. That kind of gives me a yeah. really warm feeling. <laughs> Good old Uncle Darth. He's sitting there. Yeah, this uh, it's, uh, we're finally getting everything situated in the new house. So this is like my little my little spot. And uh, so the kids and uh, Susan, they set it all up for me one day. And uh, they did a great job. So um so I had to take a picture of it. <laughs> so does it matter to you? Because I know you've broadcast like in the beginning, like in the backyard with your phone. 
Does it matter? Yeah. Do you have that set up? Does it make you feel, I don't even want to say professional because we're far from that, but does it make you feel more like <laughs> legit and in the zone to have your personal little studio right there? Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. It's nice. It's comfortable. Um, you know, before it was, you know, I had to make sure the kids were all downstairs and, and I'm upstairs and everything was closed and sound off and the AC was turned off and just because of the random noise you would hear being in Baltimore too. So you would, you get random sound. You're just like, oh, great. Got to close that window and stuff. But um, no, it's nice. It's nice to have their own little spot and, and everybody has their own area where they're doing their thing. So you, they're not running down here bugging you and stuff while, while, while we're trying to do a show. So it's nice. And then I do all the re- research here and everything. And, and um, so it gives me a space to do all of that stuff. Sounds like everything is coming up Millhouse. Yeah, it's getting there, man. <laughs> D, why don't you tell the listeners where they can find us on the magical interwebs? Well, it's super easy. All you have to do is Google musical osmosis, or you can just go to your address bar, type in musicalosmosis.com. It's all spelled exactly as you think it should be. Um, nothing weird. No, you know, we're, we're not Kesha level. There's no dollar signs or asterisks or anything like that. Um, but you will find music reviews and videos and all of our podcasts from Musical Osmosis. Um, and, you know, a little bit of deets on each of us because um, we all do all sorts of things. You know, we've also got the Apocalyptic Peanut Butter Podcast. Um, I've got my Etsy store with super cool face masks. I actually, my f- new favorite one, because I'm obsessed, obsessed <laughs> with the Umbrella Academy, is actually an Umbrella Academy mask. And within about a half an hour of posting my new design, somebody already snapped one up. I was like, yay, I'm not the only oh, one. Probably one of the It was one of the villains that bought it. Uh, yeah, could have been. Get one undercover, baby. <laughs> yeah, that's the hey, that's cool with me. Um, I love, love, love the show. If anybody is somehow still living under a rock and you haven't seen uh, the Umbrella Academy on Netflix, the first season was fantastic. The second season is even better. Um, I was really, really impressed. And yeah, I'm going to go on a little tangent for a second. I was really impressed <laughs> that the writers um, took into um, into what they did, they really listened to the fans because the first season, you know, some of it was a little long. Some of the episodes mm-hmm. felt a little laggy and they said, you know, we, we don't want to do that this time. We know people want to binge it. We want to make it super easy to binge. So every time we watched an episode, I was like, this is too short. What's, what's going on? And, and, you know, Nick's over here like, no, 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 it's not. No, yes, it is. They're about 15 minutes shorter each episode this season, and that was on purpose. So I was really glad to find out, A, I wasn't crazy, and B, the show creators uh, are really trying to make it fan-friendly. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Just check us out D. on musicalosmosis.com and uh, check out the Umbrella Academy if you haven't already. It's Consume fantastic. content. Consume All righty, let's get today's guest in here. Today's guest is a writer, prolific filmmaker, and founder of Amok Books, here to talk about his just amazing, amazing to me, because it brings back so many memories of that era, Um, his new documentary, Desolation Center, Stuart Sweezy. Stuart, welcome, sir. Hey, Stuart. Thank you, guys. What Good to be on the musical osmosis. Yeah, and we are damn happy to help to have you on here. Yeah, I want to man. thank you for calling in. And before we dive into this film, I'm going to ask you what's on everybody's mind these days. How are you adjusting to our new COVID reality, and how is it affecting the creative process? Whoa, big question. Um, yeah, so <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I guess um, I the, the the first thing was um, just like, oh, there's all this time. I should be doing all this stuff. And then realizing that like everything's harder and takes more just coordinating and, and stuff like that. So um, I think I kind of had to kind of just get used to this, this different kind of pacing and, and just being happy to connect with people when I can and just move things forward a little bit. Um, but, you know, uh, I do miss like, you know, human contact and, and, and not, you know, having it mediated through Zoom and, and stuff like that. But, I mean, one of the, the big thing is, is that we got Desolation Center up streaming, um, which was kind of in, in the plans anyway, but it still, mm-hmm. you know, took a lot of just uh, coordinating to, to, to get it up on, on all these, you know, platforms and 
available and stuff like that. So that was, I don't know, that just sort of occupied a good chunk of my uh, COVID time uh, till very recently. But yeah, just um, kind of being, you know, um, just trying to, trying to like not stress out about, you know, all the things that are going on and just sort of be yeah. happy for moving projects forward and keeping in touch with people and all that. There's definitely been yeah. ups and downs and freak outs along the way, for sure. Well, I have to tell you, um, Desolation Center, an article about it came across my feed. And, of course, I clicked it. I shared it on our Music Osmosis page. I ran over to the good old Amazon and rented it the next day and was blown away. So mm-hmm. I guess the very first thing I want to do, and that's a little prelude on how we got you on the show. But one of the first things I want to do is thank you for making this film. Because two points here. One, you did such a fucking masterful job of capturing that era. Like you almost feel like you're there in that there. Era, which, yeah, exactly. Which exactly. is what a filmmaker wants to do. And it's like I said in the intro, it's a little it was a little bit before my time. Me and Odell were running in punk circles in the nineties. So this is right. like maybe a little bit before eight, ten years before our time. But also that I threw a show back in ninety nine called The Wicked Sand Jam, where we just rented out St. Mary's Island. And the guy was like 80 years old. He had no idea what he was getting himself into. <laughs> and um, we just had 16 bands, 16 DJs on the beach. There was one, there was two cops in that town. And the cop came. He's like, listen, we're getting um, complaints across the lake about all the commotion and noise. There's two cops in this town, and one of them's off tonight. Please don't make me come back out here tonight. Like, he wouldn't even know what to do. I don't know. They would have to call it a National Guard. There were so many people <laughs> there. And it yeah. just made me nostalgia for that age. And it just made me remember that DIY ethic, that ethos of, especially when we were coming up, you know, flyers on the telephone pole days. And mm-hmm. I just want, like I said, I want to thank you for making this movie because it just captured that moment in time. And I just can't imagine all these years going back and trying to resource that footage. Well, hey, thank you so much for you know all that and, and for, jumping on it and, and checking it out on, on on Amazon. I mean, it's so cool to hear because that's the thing that, you know, I was really feeling is like there's so many people that I would like to be able to see this film, but, you know, until we got it streaming, we really weren't able to, to, to reach, you know, everybody. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of that vibe that you're describing, I mean, I think it, it's not universal, but I think a lot of people at various points in time, you know, um, had that experience of like, yeah, let's just get a generator, you know, let's do this, you know? And um, then looking back on it, you know, I realized that like, this is actually a a really cool story to tell that I hadn't seen, you know? And um, so for me, by that time, I, you know, I I wanted to be a documentary director and I'd I'd done work in TV and I produced a, a music documentary that my friend, uh made about the, the, the rave scene at that you know in, in the late 90s or whatever right and so um i just uh just started the ball rolling um by you know getting in touch with my friends from those days and a lot of people i hadn't seen in many many years you know um and uh but I, you know uh, it was cool to reconnect with people and start finding this footage, you know, and realizing that like, yeah, the footage is great, but the audio sucks. And then someone else came forward who had brought his Sony Walkman to like all of our shows, uh, Bob Durkee. And and so anyway, it just kind of was like a giant, you know, uh, project of putting all these pieces together. And, you know, thanks to, you know, I mean, I love analog, but thanks to digital technology, we were able to actually make it all work. So, it, oh yeah, yeah absolutely, like you were there, you know. Yeah, just based off of the documentary, a lot of times when um, we have people on that have uh, worked with different bands or come up with certain bands, and and they were like, well, I didn't really know that they, th- these bands were going to take off the way they did, and but it felt like watching the documentary, you, it felt like you knew, like. Um, the Minutemen were something special. You knew that um, Sonic Youth, of course, was something special. Did you it, did you always have that feeling with those bands that you uh, hung out with, played with, or uh, and, and 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 had at at these shows? Well, you know, yes and no. Like I think at mm-hmm. that point in time and in my life, I I just thought that like the best band in the world would only appeal to like twenty people. You know, I just didn't even yeah. imagine that there was any connection between sort of success and and you know, kind of like artistic success or having some validity, you know. So the Minutemen, I mean, you could go see them like three or four nights a week around L.A. They'd always be doing benefits for El Salvador or whatever. 
And mm-hmm. so, I mean, we knew they were great and we loved them, but the idea of them kind of becoming legendary or anything like that, it, it didn't really seem possible. So even even to, to the degree of Sonic Youth, you know, I mean, I thought they were freaking amazing. But again, it was kind yeah. of like, it didn't seem like a big deal to put on a show out in the middle of the desert with them because how many people are going to go anyway, you know? Right, so we put, you know, right, right. On the bill and we better put the meat puppets on the bill. And there's that guy, yeah. Barry Farrell, and like, yeah, he, he'll open, you know? And so I, I, I just don't think that like, at least for me, I didn't think of it being commercial music. I, I just thought it was just really cool shit, you know, that I love. Gotcha. And kind of yeah. going back about this process of putting it together, I guess the most obvious question is why now, 40 years later, going back and, and not just the footage. You know, one thing I was thinking about is the footage is what it is, and it's either there or it's not. But just trying to string these stories back together, because after 40 years, you know, we're going to have holes in our memory and everybody's going to come oh, yeah. at it remembering things a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely a challenge for me in that I actually didn't remember things as well as other people. Um, and so I was really surprised at, at how much came out when, when, when we started talking about it on camera, you know, I mean, at first, you know, we set up the lights and people would be like, Oh shit, I don't uh, make me nervous. You know, then it, it was a process of kind of getting them because I wanted it to look good. I, you know, I knew the footage was going to look, you know, you know, like it was from the eighties and, and, and all that. And so I wanted the interview to be, you know, well lit and, and that kind of thing and sound good so you could hear people. And, um, but, uh, I realized that like, I actually didn't remember all kinds of stuff and partly because I, I think I was just running around stressed out trying to make sure all these things. Oh, happened. I know that. You know. Yeah. And see, and, and, and that was the question <laughs> I was about to ask you. I was like, how awesome is it that you, you were able to get all this footage because watching that video, watching that documentary, you were like, stress the heck out <laughs> you were like i mean you're setting things up you're sending you're sending kids that literally it was it was so amazing to hear all the way from like you know uh, the not well i call them kids but they're older than us yeah uh, the teens at that time all the way to mike watt being like man i've never been out in the desert i've never been out here and 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 being like holy crap how am i going to get school buses to get people out here from the city in the daytime, mind you, like and in the afternoon, which is very well, rare. <laughs> man. Yeah, that's, yeah, and I think it, it's got to be amazing to be able to, like, thank God I didn't remember that because I was too busy dealing with this or I was too busy dealing with that. So I know it had to be a, a blessing to be able to see all of that again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And also, like, a lot of the stills that, you know, people took really, really cool photos and, uh, you know, it started with my friend Mariska, who, who's in the film, who was kind of one of our original, you know, bus monitors. But she's also a photographer. And, and so that was kind of how the process started. I was like, well, Mariska, do you have those photos? And she's like, I don't know, man. I, I might have to, like, you know, look in my garage. And, you know, so and then we, we started putting stuff up on Facebook. And that's when things started coming out of the woodwork. And all, all these different people kind of emerged that had, had done really cool photography. And then. We did an art show uh, in San Pedro, uh, you know, where the Minutemen come from. And uh, then Naomi Peterson, who I don't know if you guys are familiar with her, but she was kind of a legendary uh, punk photographer, did a lot of stuff with SST Records and things like that. So she she ended up living in D.C. and then she she died, um, you know, years ago. But her brother turned up and he's like, yeah, I got this whole hard drive full of Naomi's photos. So, so that was really cool that we were able to like show her work and include that in the film. And so it, it's, yeah, it was kind of like this ongoing thing where stuff kept coming up and uh, yeah, I, I would always get, you know, just, I mean, chills really seeing some of this. Yeah. yeah. So day one, are you going into this? Like, let me just put some fillers out there and like, I'm like 80% sure this isn't ever going to come to fruition. Or were you from the beginning? Like, this is a hell of a story I got to tell and I'm going to make this happen. Well, I mean, I am, I do think that part of my personality is that, you know, if I start a project, I don't want to like not finish it. So I have to be careful of that because sometimes you go on like a death <laughs> march like yeah it doesn't happen but um the the, really the origin of it was that i have like a couple buddies and we would get together and just watch music documentaries actually we we actually did it socially distanced on saturday night with a with like a a projector in in my backyard um which we hadn't done it in a while and uh, (laughs) so i was like i should make a music documentary like i have all the 
necessary skills at this point, you know, and then in the middle of that, I wasn't really thinking about desolation center. I was just thinking like, yeah, that's something I, I should do. And then the, this guy from Germany, uh, Jörg Steineck was making a documentary about the stoner rock, desert rock scene, Caius and all yes. that. Yep. And he's like, I kept, I keep hearing that like, it all goes back to this show you did in the desert with, and, and you know, uh, but we couldn't really figure out how to, I mean, it was you know, his job to fit that into his film and it didn't really end up, I mean, you hear my name, like, you know, which is great that I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be there, but um, right. it did get me thinking that, you know, maybe this is a bigger story than I thought. And I started realizing that people had written about this, you know, gig in the desert with Sonic Youth or, or Neubauten or whatever. And, um, so anyway, I, I guess I realized that it was a good story and I was in the middle of it and I knew everybody, but, you know, I, I, I kind of uh, still needed to get back in touch with people I hadn't spoke to in 30 years and track them down and things yeah, like that. Oh my God, so it was I cool. can only imagine. I, so take yeah, it back. So, so, so like even before that, I, the, the one thing that truly amazed me was, um, and, it, and, it, and it started at the beginning of the, of the show and the, and the origins behind, you know, you doing these shows. I I had no clue that the LAPD. I knew they were bad, I, you know, just from like from the night from the nineties on. I knew, uh, or actually the mid eighties when NWA and all that came out, the mid late eighties, that there was issues. But I had no clue it was that deep rooted even in the punk community. So how, how did that? I mean, I I had no clue, and I don't think a lot of people really realized that. So um. Can you just go through that that time period a little bit on how sure. all of that that kind of stuff, and then the then the the attitude that was L.A. influenced you to do you know to do Desolation Center and then to do those shows? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, and you're calling from uh, I mean, I mean, you're you're broadcasting from Baltimore, so if you're shocked, you know, um, yeah, you know, <laughs> but yeah, it was, a, it was a crazy situation. I mean, because um, you know you got to realize like punk rock, you know, hit in the obviously, you know, late seventies. And, and, and so I discovered it, you know, being like in 11th grade in high school. And there was one radio show that would play the sex pistols or the damned or whatever Ramones, we could, we could listen to that, you know, but um, I started going out to see gigs and it was very small scale, you know, um, little places in Hollywood, like the mask and stuff like that. And, you know, it was pretty, like no one cared what went on in, in certain parts of LA at that time, you know, whether it be Hollywood mm -hmm. or downtown. And then as the scene got bigger, I think that, that it got on the radar of the LAPD and, and LAPD was, you know, the police chief was Daryl Gates, who oh, I finally stepped down yeah. you know, after, after the whole uprising in 92. And, you know, he had a very, I mean, uh, pretty much like fascist outlook, you know, I mean, I mean, they were definitely, you know, uh, racial profiling, but they also kind of were just like kind of uh, still the residue of the late 60s, you know, kind of demonstrations and stuff like that. I think that they were really worried that if like all these suburban kids like discover anarchy and then they start hanging out with all the Latinos and like then the black kids get like, what's going to happen to L.A.? It's going to be like the Warriors movie. Unite all the yeah. gangs together. <laughs> right, right. So, so I think they just would see these anarchy symbols and it like, you know, it triggered this like response of like, oh, it's not going to be like the late 60s. We're going to we're going to stop these kids, you know. And um, so plus, you know, I, there, there's a great book called City of Courts. Uh, this guy, Mike Davis, uh, wrote and, and you can see from that that they had a lot of Vietnam veteran type experience and they were basically uh -huh. doing, um, you know, uh, sort of what they would call the strategic hamlet, you know, occupying thing. And so they just didn't give a shit, you know, about, about you know, uh, asserting their power. And so anyway. Yeah, they were real so big as, on as command they, presence back then. Yeah. Yeah. And they had helicopters everywhere. And, you know, and so as as punk became more, you know, widespread, let's say, um, and, and, you know, you had, you know, radio stations that were commercial radio playing, you know, Black Flag and things like that. You know, it, okay. it just got bigger and bigger to where, um, you know, it, they really felt like they had this grudge. And so um, I think I think if you guys are familiar with the uh, Henry Rollins book, Get in the Van, that's kind of his yeah. diaries. It's got that oh, yeah. picture. And, and that's from one of the one of the gigs that we talk about in the film where it was Ramon's Black Flag and the Minutemen and the LAPD, you know, it just a, 
at a venue in in Hollywood that it's called the Palladium. It goes back to the old you know big band days, and yep. they showed up you know with the Riot Squad. They just started you know wailing on kids with with you know batons, and, and yeah. it was just a really bad scene. And um, so that was kind of what we were getting used to at a certain point. But it also was. Um, becoming really difficult for bands to actually play, you know, at, at, right around the time when I, when I did the first desert show, it was also when the clamp down <laughs> was sort of going on at, you know, okay. and so um, it was a combination of, of wanting to, to be able to see music without all the bullshit combined with um, uh, the idea of, um, yeah, let's just get away from this whole nightclub thing. It's, you know, it's not really, because I think some of the bands like the Minutemen and Savage Republic, who I did the first Desert Show with, you know, they were a little mm-hmm. more experimental, a little more out there. And so it was also like, what would happen if you changed the vibe, you know, and, and, and got away from the, the kind of like, you know, just sketchy places where you normally see punk rock. So, you know, it, it was, uh, it kind of served two, two things at the same time. Um, and in terms of the LA scene, I mean, I guess, you know, starting with, let's say 19 late 77 78 there was just all kinds of wacky unusual bands you know people like monitor or you know i, I mean kind of you know um like the screamers that you know they they, mm-hmm. they weren't really like your three chord rock and roll kind of configurations but they were totally punk in their whole expression you know so that was right. kind of like also something that i and I think, you know, pe- people like Mike Watt, you know, I, talk about that too. Like, we just got used to the idea that punk meant you couldn't be like everybody else. You know, you had to have something new, bring something to the party that people hadn't seen yet. So so I think that kind of influenced me to always be looking for things that were a little more out there in one way or another, you know. Let me kind of shift gears here, too, because I'm glad you brought up your roots. And I had read this, too, about you being 16 years old and going down to the strip and watching these bands. What kind of household did you grow up in? Like, were your parents supportive of this? Were they outraged? Were they indifferent? Did you have a lot of support at home going through that time period, leading all the way up to the Desolation Center shows? Uh, I mean, it's funny because, you know, um, I mean, it was pretty, you know, normal normal household grew up on the west side of LA and you know I have two older brothers and you know for whatever reason my brother like turned me on to Stooges you know because he's nine years older and and so I kind of was aware of that stuff but I mean I was pretty you know I I mean I went to the same junior high school and and high school as like Pat Smear and Kira oh wow Black Flag and stuff like that um, but I wasn't one of those kids that were into like, you know, Mott the Hoople and like Quaaludes and, you know, all that. I mean, they were <laughs> way cooler than me. And so I, in terms of my family, I, I, you know, it's funny. I, you know, my mom is still alive and she's very proud of me and the film and really supportive. And so she came to one of the screenings when, you know, here um, and, and uh, I just said, you know, hey, my mom's here or whatever. And she said, well, I didn't know you were doing all that stuff back then. <laughs> Really? <laughs> I just kind of like kept it, you know, on the DL and, and um, I did live at home part of that time, but then, I, you know, I just, I really couldn't deal with my home situation. So, um, you know, it, it just sort of, um, it was stuff that was going on, but I wasn't really talking about it. And, you know, gotcha. so um, I think back then, um, I don't know, like I just, yeah, I think that there, you know, my parents didn't understand the music. They didn't really understand what the attraction was. It all just seemed kind of crazy. And, you know, I was always coming home, you know, inebriated or whatever. And so I just <laughs> kind of kept a lot to myself, actually. Um, and I think, you know, it, now I'm happy that, you know, like she can see it and, and share, you know, the things. But, you know, she's still like, well, did you have to put all the LSD stuff in there? Because I think you better work that. <laughs> Jeez. Um, how many of these Desolation Center shows were there? And do you have footage from every single show? Uh, well, there weren't that. I mean, I mean, the early shows, let's say like the, the, the ones before we started going out to the desert. I, I don't have any any footage of those. And actually, the first desert show, there, there's no footage of um, if somebody filmed it, you know, and they're listening to this, please let me know. But um, we have the skills. <laughs> And so um, it was really the second desert show with Einstein and Neubauten and the Bible Research Laboratories um, that we we got really good coverage of. And that then, was amazing, by, anyway, too, by the way. Moving, Goodness moving gracious. Moving forward, I mean, 
you, there, there was a, a zine called Flipside that start had started doing video stuff, um, mm-hmm. putting out you know VHS tapes and stuff. So so they were at the last Desert Show with Sonic Youth, and and um, that was great because that they documented a lot a lot of the the musical performance stuff. And then there were other people like uh, this guy Dave Travis who kind of he was videotaping a lot of the footage where it's like people at the map point and stuff like that. Like he was just shooting all kinds of stuff, and I think he thought he was gonna. I mean, he filmed all kinds of stuff back then, but he was thinking about some kind of wacky experimental film with Dave Markey, who is is a pretty you know well known filmmaker uh, himself. Mm-hmm. But Dave's in a lot of the footage anyway. But it turned out to be really good for me because he filmed all kinds of things that people you know don't normally shoot. Like, and so we were able to put together these different bits and pieces and kind of tell the story. Um, so yeah, that that was. Uh, then the last show with with Swans and Sonic Youth and Saccharine Trust, um, there's no footage of, and I thought for sure there there would have been, but um, wow, okay. <laughs> and I didn't. think w- one of the things that speaks to you, uh, your integrity, especially as a filmmaker, is that you were really hesitant to even put yourself in this film, even though you were such a key component in that scene. Well, you know, I, thanks, and I hope that that the way it worked out is is that I, I came across, you know, part of the film, but it not being about me because I, I, you know, at first, yeah, I didn't really know how to kind of deal with that. You know, that, that there was a lot of this stuff that I'm the only one that really understood or knew about or whatever, or that could bridge certain parts of the story. So uh, I, one of the last interviews that I really did was with myself, you know, and starting to actually um, tell those parts of the story. And, and then I realized that, you know, uh, it could be done. You know what I mean? It didn't have to be, you know, kind of this like ego trip thing. Um, but it's still, you know, it's still, I, I feel like um, that it's just hard to, to switch it around, you know, and, and, and put the camera on yourself. So, um, you know, that, that was, uh, that was a, a, a tough thing to pull off, I think. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you make that creative choice to be like, Hey, this is the desolation center story, not the Stuart Sweezy story. Like, how do you, how do you define that line? Of like, all right, I'm centering this a little bit too much around me. I mean, it helps to have someone to work with. And, and Tyler hubby is, is, was the editor of desolation center. And he also did the devil and Daniel Johnston uh, as an editor. I don't know if you guys saw that. Um, but you know, it really, at that point in time where we had a lot of the footage, you know, it, it was great to work with somebody who cut music docs and stuff like that. Um, and so that, that collaboration and then, then showing it to people like rough cuts, you know, to friends. And then they're like, Oh, I didn't know that like, you know, you had seen that Werner Herzog film and that, you know, just, just in conversation, uh, you know, some things that maybe I didn't realize were interesting were um, brought into the film. And then, right. but for me, like thinking about, I didn't want the film to be just about these particular shows. I, I kind of also always felt like it was about the vibe and the sensibility of that time where it wasn't, you know, um, punk rock as it first started. And it wasn't the indie rock scene that kind of came later. It was something yeah. in between a lot of it had to do with SST and black flag and, and, and people that were connected to that, like the Minutemen, um, but also just, crazy performance stuff like, you know, uh, survival research laboratories with these machines. And in the case of the show that they came down to out in the desert, you know, blowing up refrigerators. And I just felt like there was like people, uh, there was a whole kind of uh, story that hadn't really been told. So, so I wanted the Desolation Center story to also be about kind of the, the, the scene that led up to people like Sonic Youth that, you know, now people, people are, are, you know, aware of and, and respect and had created all this great music, but kind of just to, to set it all up um, and, and, and also kind of give people maybe a little inspiration to go out and do some, you know, crazy things that they wouldn't have done otherwise. Yeah. The, the, well, I got, uh, I know just look, you know, watching the movie and, and, and there's Perry Farrell on there, a young Perry Farrell, room, y'all were roommates at one point. And, and, you know, him getting like an opening slide, <laughs> which I thought was awesome because I'm sitting here watching this. I'm like, that's Perry Farrell. And he's, he's like, <laughs> thank you for that opening, opening, you know, slide at, at, the, at the show. Um, have, have you ever had any other artists like that may not necessarily played the Desolation Center, but um, that, you know, 
took off that were like, hey, I was there. I was at those shows or any any medium that, you know, you're like, wow, I didn't realize you you were there or or anybody that took that and they were influenced off of that. Has anybody ever come back to you and, and said those things? Um, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I guess probably, you know, Perry would be the, the, the best known people, you know, person out of that scene. Um, yeah. and of course, you know, he became a festival, you know, uh, creator himself and, and things like that. But I mean, it, I have to say it wasn't really so much one person, but it tripped me out in the course of starting on the film to learn that John Law, who was one of the found, co-founders of Burning Man, had heard yeah. about these shows in the desert from survival research laboratories because he was like kind of a peripheral, you know, volunteer, did some some stuff with neon tubes and stuff for survival research laboratories. But they told him about the time they went down to the desert and blew shit up, you know. And and I didn't know that until um, right when I started on the project. Um, you know, I had this idea I'm going to make a documentary, and then this guy. Uh, was writing for Vice magazine, uh, heard about from from one of the survival research laboratory people, and we did the interview, and he's like, God, it'd be really great if you could tie it into Burning Man, because, you know, otherwise I'm never going to get this thing published, you know. And oh. um, so then I'm like, oh, we'll talk to John Law, and who I knew through Amok Books, and I knew he lived up in the Bay Area. And um, anyway, long story short, he was like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's where we got the idea of going out to the desert. And so for me, that wow. was... Uh, kind of kind of wacky because i really did i i really don't think i would want to be at what burning man became i mean i know it's not going to happen this year for obvious reasons right. but um but I, I did go in the early days and i thought it was really cool you know um and uh to, to think that that had come out of what we were doing makes sense but it, it just i i was completely unaware of that so that's awesome and, uh, and when you're, you have this impact, you have this lineage where Lollapalooza has your DNA on it because it was influenced by those shows or Burning Man, like indirectly and Coachella, Coachella and, all, yeah. Yeah, and all these other outdoor festivals. Are you happy with that legacy? Are you like, yeah, like I can really look back and know that I'm part of that legacy or do you not think of that in those terms? I mean, you know, I'm not like a big festival guy, you know, like it's just not not really something that appeals to me that much. And I just was watching this documentary uh, with Sleaford Mods, uh, you know, it was about them and they're at the Glastonbury Festival and like you see them mm-hmm. approaching it. And I'm like, ah, oh, what a nightmare, you know, like I just, you know, what 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 I think it, it's nice to be acknowledged, like, yeah, you inspired something, but I, I don't really, really, I'm not a big fan of what those things have become. Um, so. Uh, I would rather think that, you know, maybe coming out of this whole quarantine lockdown situation that people, you know, people who have, you know, when it's like safe to, to do it or we figure out the ways to 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 um, do gigs and be outdoors and stuff like that is that, you know, it it could be more, you know, micro, like just the same way of a small label or, you know, uh, someone being a SoundCloud rapper or whatever it is, you know, I don't think everything needs to be so colossal, you know, I think that right, kind of right. takes away uh, a lot of the, of the spirit of it. I imagine that you've had people contact you, just fans of the film who had a misconception of that era and were like, man, dude, I had no idea. This is what that was. Uh, I think people, the, the way it usually seems to get framed to me is more like, Oh shit! I wish I'd been alive then. <laughs> I wish I'd. I wish I'd known about this show. You know, um, I, and I didn't really want to create this like nostalgia thing, but I, I do feel like, um, you know, I just wanted to stand up for our scene and our era. You know, and and and, and you know, because we kind of, I didn't feel like it had necessarily been told. That story had been told. Um, so it's like you know, people get inspired by all kinds of things. You know, um, and so. You know, if, if if it can be, you know, somehow illuminating for people, I just think that that's cool. You know, that that you can make music with, you know, sledgehammers and and you know, you know, road construction equipment or, or things like that. I just feel like there's so many possibilities, you know, and so I just wanted to put that all out there. So talk to me about the end of this era. I mean, was it like survival research laboratories going out there and like trying to blow down fucking boulders with TNT? <laughs> and you're like, man, dude, this is getting a little bit 
too crazy, too out of hand. And then you had the Bureau of Land Management kind of coming after you. Is this what shut those down or did it just kind of run your its course and you're like, I'm on to the next thing? Uh, it, it definitely was for me more. Th- I mean, I didn't like having the BLM, you know, uh, have my home number and, you know, like, like wow. threatening me with, you know, trespassing charges and all this stuff. I mean, that sucked. But um, I also think I was having a hard time figuring out how to top these shows. You know, it was always like, oh, you know, if I was going to do it again, I wanted it to be better, you know. And, and so mm-hmm. um, maybe uh, I was already a little bit like, yeah, I, I, this has kind of run its course. I'm not going to, you know, top that Sonic Youth gig out in the desert, you know, or, or, or um, I just uh, I do feel like the scene also i mean things were were starting to change here in la and um it doesn't mean to say great music doesn't come along but there was kind of an innocence that was starting to get a little bit corrupted by the record industry and i think you know okay yeah you felt it um and then you know the other thing was and i didn't really realize it then but you know the same night that we did our last uh desolation center show which was kind of just in this big warehouse in, in downtown la it wasn't out in the desert but you know it was also the night that D Boone died in a car crash. Right. You know, oh wow, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So so it was just I don't know. I just like I I think I just had this reaction of like I need to do something different, you know. Yeah. Um and that's where we started, you know, we were really inspired by I would say we like me and other friends, including Mariska who's in the film, by the the research mm-hmm. books, you know, especially the industrial culture handbook, which survival research laboratories are in that book and other people, mm-hmm. you know, throbbing gristle and stuff. And so we were trying to think about like, what can we do with more like subversive literature and things like that. So we ended up, you know, evolving toward muck books. And so, yeah, I don't know. I just felt like, yeah, keep, you know, keep changing it up and not, not try to reenact the same thing if it's not going to be better. You know? What are you talking timeline here from first desolation center show to last one, two years, three years. Okay. So if you want to, let's say the first shows were in 82. That was before we went out to the desert. The first desert show was in 83 spring, like March, I think. And then, uh, or April. And then the last one was, uh, December, uh, of 85. So yeah, roughly two. Wow. Yeah. And is there a lot of pushback when you wrap it up? Like, are people like, Oh, come on, man. Do you got one more in you? Let's just do one more. Or was everybody ready to let go? Uh, I think people would have probably been stoked if I continued to do desert shows. I mean, it just, I guess for me, the comeback was, was to do the one with, with swans and Sonic Youth and Sack of Trust. And, and that's partly because we got funding from the National Endowment for the Arts. So I was like, well, the budget's here, you know, these cool bands from New York want to fly out and do it. And like, how can I turn that down? But I, I think at that point I was just kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm not really into being a concert promoter. Like I, I just need to take a break and, and figure out, you know, what I, do I got you. And during this filmmaking process, did you reconnect with people and you were just shocked? Like, Oh my God, I haven't talked to you in 30 years. Were you reconnecting with people you never thought you would hear from again? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so many <laughs> people in that film, you know, and there are people that you, you would see every night or, you know, whatever, at like a certain club, like the anti club or whatever, or there are guys that were, you know, in, in Berlin and things like that, you know, the, that uh, both current and former members of my church know about. And it, it was really cool. Like I, I you know, some, sometimes if you've had that experience of, of sort of being at a certain place in time and, uh, and then you haven't seen somebody for 30 years, you know, it's a little bit like, well, what is this going to be like? You know, what, what are we going to, how are we going to connect? Not. And then, you know, it, it, usually, you know, I found that it was, amazing like you know you just kind of picked up where you left off and um i just think there's something about sort of being in these certain situations with people that you you end up having the sensibility even if it's 30 years later that you're still kind of on the same wavelength you know um and then yeah so i you know i i i really that was one of the really great things about working on the film for me was just you know the, the reconnecting and the kind of seeing things from you know the same thing but from different points of view uh, and did a lot of those bands it. make it out to the screenings, like Sonic Youth and Meat Puppets and all them? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think just about everybody that I would have wanted to have seen it um, has been able to see it, you know, projected in a theater. I mean, the last screening that we did 
um, in a movie theater was at the end of February in New York. So we actually went to this IFC center, which is kind of like, you know, it was a big deal. Uh, yeah. Theater in Manhattan. And um, Steve Shelley from Sonic Youth had been waiting to see it projected. I was like, I could send you the Vimeo link, you know. <laughs> and he was like, no, man, I, I want to see it on the big screen, you know. So it was really cool. And then he. That's awesome. That was, was really there. cool. He, you know, he did the Q&A with us. And, he, and then he was wow. like. Wow. Is anybody doing the soundtrack? Because I, I really want to put that out. So so now we're working together on that, which I'm Oh, that'll really be great. Honored. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. That's a great segue too, because before we wrap this up, I want to talk about the things you do have coming out. Cause I know you've got a live in the desert forty five split with um Red Cross and Sonic Youth. Is that all being remastered from the original recordings? Uh yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sort of trusting, uh, you know, we're going to do it with Third Man Records because um, mm-hmm. that all started with a, a screening we did in Detroit. They have a store, like a record store. They have a label, but they also have a pressing plant, which I just thought was so cool as being a record geek. So that I made them give me a whole tour of their pressing plant, which is literally next to their record store. And so we were always like, yeah, we should do something, you know. And then and so now we have this project. Um, so I think, that, you know, they're going to do the mastering and, um, you know, some of the recordings are from, you know, the, this guy, Bob's uh, Sony Walkman, but other ones are things that I was able to download and things like that. So I think, you know, um, they're going to make it sound as, as cool as possible. And um, yeah, we just we just wanted to make something kind of a limited edition thing that we could sort of jump into. Um, and so, yeah. Um, but that's I'm different than what you're that. doing with Steve Shelley, right? Because you're doing right. Well, a double L. Yeah. Is, is pals with the Third Man Records. I mean, he comes from the from Michigan originally. You know, when he was in the Crucifix before he was in yep. Sonic Youth, and um, so uh, we're all kind of working together on that, as well as uh, the Red Cross guys are, are doing records with with Third Man. So it all just kind of came together. And then, but but the soundtrack will be like a bigger project. Um, like I think it's going to be a double double LP and, and Bruce Leisher from Savage Republic who designed our original tickets and, and things like that. It will do the, the whole packaging. And, and so, um, so we're yeah, looking at next year on that project. then. Cause that's going to yeah. be such a big project. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's finish up with this. Cause you are much more than just a filmmaker of this movie. Tell us what you have coming up and tell us a little bit about Amok books. Okay. So um, as far as the, the coming up goes, I mean, um, I, I'm working on, a few different projects that are, you know, still early days. I mean, the whole, um, so I, one is, uh, comes out of my muck books experience, which is, uh, you know, we had a bookstore for 10 years. We, we did mail order of like subversive and all kinds of, uh, you know, extreme literature before the internet. So, I mean, it's, it was a different world. Even feels in a way like more of a different world than going back to the desolation center days, just because of the way information sort of is transmitted now and you know like mm-hmm. conspiracies weren't like emanating from the white house back then you know? <laughs> yeah um, the good old days so yeah but but also like like how quaint in another way you know that you had to like wait for your book to come in the mail and things like that but anyway there's an author a guy that i got to know really well named john gilmore and um i mean he wrote the first book on the black dahlia murder he grew up here uh, in LA, uh, was hanging out with James Dean. He never really made it as an actor. He became a true crime writer and, uh, just lived this ridiculously, uh, you know, kind of this life that, that you can't even believe these things are true. I mean, he wrote the treatment that became easy rider and just all this stuff. And so, um, he's no longer alive, but I'm working with his son, Carson uh, on a, a film t- sort of telling his story and, Hopefully we're going to be able to, you know, reach out to some of the people that knew him from the, you know, famous criminal defense lawyer, Ethley Bailey, who represented uh, the serial killer that he wrote, wrote his first book about to Mamie Van Doren, who was like kind of like a Marilyn Monroe wannabe actress that, that was friends with him and whatever. So, so that's, mm-hmm. that's a project that I'm working on. And um, also some other, other things in the vein of, um, true crime miniseries kind of thing that uh so you know um I'll, I'll be able to talk about more of this stuff as it gets a little further along that'll be awesome yeah man. all righty well we are going to cut you loose um i want to thank you so much for calling in and sharing your story and like i said man that movie was not just 
watching a movie. It, for me, it was an experience. And yeah, I will repeat myself, you did a masterful job of bringing at least me as the viewer into that moment. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much, you guys. I mean, really, you know, a pleasure to, to, to get to talk about it and to connect with people. And, you know, that, that you guys found it. Streaming is awesome because that's kind of really what, what we wanted to be able to do and, and get it out there. So anyway, um, hey. Much Before you hop off, tell us where to find you on the interwebs. Okay, www.desolationcenter.com. If, if people go to that site, it has all the different streaming links and, and things like that. But, um, you know, we're, we're up on the bigger platforms, uh, Amazon, iTunes. Yeah. Uh, if people are in other countries and they can't access it, Vimeo is really good because it, it's pretty international. Um, Fandango. Yeah, so, um, but, but go to desolationcenter.com. Or go to our Facebook page and, you know, you can keep up on what's going on. I'm an old timer, so I still love DVDs. Can you get this on DVD or is it just digital? Right now it's just digital, um, but, but the DVD is coming. Uh, both, we're going to have nice. uh, like a, just the basic film available on DVD. But what we really want to do is a whole extra DVD of, of you know, interviews and footage and, and things that, you know, didn't necessarily make it into the film that, that are connected. Because there's no kind of like i'm sure you can feel it from what we've been talking about but there's a whole story of west coast underground culture from you know the origins of of uh survival research laboratories and things like that that you know we weren't able to make it into the film so that's why i'm excited about doing the dvd as a as a bigger project but again may take a while may take till next year let me slip this last thing in too because that was a good point um did you receive footage after this was released and was like damn it i wish i had this before we went to release um not so much i mean i think i had enough time that i was able to fit in everything um that, that you know really was was make or break um but, you know, I'm always worried about that. Like, what if something really fucking amazing just turned up and, like, we didn't fit it <laughs> So far, because, you know, if you look at stills or you look at the footage, you'll see somebody with a camera. Who's that guy? Like, where's his footage? You know, but um, so far, uh, I think, you know, we were able to, to, to fit it all in. Yeah, I mean, I'm, enough of it that to, it tells the story. Um, oh, it tells I mean, the story. Some of the interview things. It definitely and, does. And things like that. Yeah. You know, there's there's cool tangents that just I couldn't figure out how to how to fit them in. So <laughs> right on. All righty, Stuart. All thank right. you so much. Thank and you, we Stuart. will be in touch. Thank you. All right. So long. Thanks, okay, we, we ended last episode kind of crazy. We just stopped and afterwards he was like, uh, are you alive? Did you have a stroke back <laughs> there, Nick? Because she's not used to me shutting up. Mm-hmm. So how do we end right. today? <laughs> 